Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. In the last episode, we discussed my father's upbringing, the potential abuse he and his siblings suffered, and his long history of having inappropriate and sometimes aggressive relationships with women and young girls. And we heard that awful audio of him interviewing four very young girls and calling them pretty. I left you with my parents and siblings driving off to start their new lives as a blended family. In this episode, we will be talking about Alyssa's early life, our mother, and this new family dynamic. We will explore what it was like for Alyssa in those early years and how our father treated her so differently from the rest of the children. And we will also be exploring the extremely suspicious circumstances surrounding my mother's death and my father's possible involvement. I will be introducing you to some new witnesses in this episode. You will meet my mother's sister, Teresa, her sister-in-law, Lori, and her best friend, Linda. They were all very close to the family during this time and each have a unique perspective and interesting information about what happened. But let's start with my mother's background. Ten years younger than my father, my mother Barbara Lee Farner was born in 1958 in Texas to Linda and Earl Farner. She was the third of their four children. She had an older brother named Kevin and two sisters, Lynette, who unfortunately passed away this year, and Teresa, who you will hear from in this episode. I never knew much about my mother's childhood, and that information isn't in police reports, so I had to ask around. And it seems that it wasn't the easiest, but it wasn't the worst. She moved around a bit, and her and her siblings were split between different parents, so the four of them didn't always spend a lot of time together growing up. But one of the things that my Aunt Teresa remembers vividly is how stubborn my mother was and how much she just wanted to be a mom. When she got a little bit older, she loved babies and, and little kids. And um, that's what she always wanted for herself. And she wanted, you know, a few kids. I don't want to be married to anybody. I don't want to deal with a husband, you know, 13, 14 years old. And she'd say, yep, I'm going to have kids. I don't want any husband. I just want kids. My mother was 12 in 1970 and seems to have experienced the decade to its fullest as a teenager. By this time, she was living with her mother and younger sister, Lynette. They loved music, Bob Dylan, and smoking pot. Before Lynette passed, she told me stories of them sneaking out of their bedroom window to go to parties and meet boys. And then as teenagers do, my mother fell in love with one of those boys and had her first child, my brother John, in 1977, when she was 19 years old. But the relationship with John's father didn't last, And staying true to her 13-year-old self, my mother never married him. But eventually, she found love again, and she decided she would give this whole marriage thing a try. And not too long after, Alyssa Marie was born to my mother and her husband, Stephen Strom, in 1984. And when Alyssa was only three weeks old, my mother had to go back to work and needed a babysitter. This is when she met Linda, who Alyssa would eventually grow up calling mom. No one spent more time with Alyssa than Linda, and she remembers it vividly. I met Barbara about three weeks before Alyssa was born. She came came into my home because I ran a daycare in my home, and she came to interview me. She was supposed to be there at 2. She came at 12.30. I had three in in high chairs feeding them. I had kindergartners. I was getting ready to get get sent off, and I thought, oh, what a worst time. She's going to see me. I'm so disorganized. But I really was never disorganized. And then uh, when Alyssa was three weeks old, she came, started to do daycare at my home. Your mom was like a a alarm clock, I would set her, set my watch by her. Your mom was in the house by 7.30, 7.23 every morning. And she was pick her up at about 7, or at uh, 5.20 to 5.30 every afternoon. Yeah, so 10 hours a day. Yeah, Monday through Friday. And sometimes Saturday. And sometimes Sunday. 
And it wasn't too long until my mother would meet my father, Michael Roy Turney, and he would become obsessed with having her. Continuing his now over 10-year pattern of pursuing married women. My father always said that he and my mother met when he saw her and Alyssa hiding from Steve in a park after he'd become angry. He said that he came to her rescue, and they fell in love, and the rest was history. But Linda's story sounds a bit more believable. You know how they met, right? I've heard a lot of different stories about how they met. Mike went into the bank where your mom worked, and your mom was a loan officer. And Mike went in to get a second on the house that he lived in. And the next day, he sent her flowers. And the next day, he sent her flowers. And then he went in again and asked if he'd take her to lunch. Your mom's unhappy with Steve. So she says to me, Steve and I are getting divorced. And I said, what? And she goes, yeah, I moved out like last week or so. So then by then, your dad's starting to show up in the picture. And I, and I said to her, so when did you meet him? And she was, oh, we had an affair. We've been having an affair. And she just was unhappy with him. And along came Mike. And she had already, she had moved out of C's house, but I didn't know she was moving in with Mike. It was quiet. And the minute the divorce, I mean, basically, the divorce was final with Steve, and she married Mike the next day. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know it was that quick. quick. And they went to the Justice of the Peace on a Friday afternoon and were married. They didn't do any, any honeymoon or anything. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. It wasn't too long before they stopped allowing Alyssa's biological father to see her. And he wasn't too happy about it. He even reportedly tried to run my father over with a car, resulting in my father trying some crazy karate kick through the car window. And then, in 1988, my parents had their only child together. Me. And to be honest, there seems to have been a lot of good times in the family at this point. They had full custody of all six kids, and there was a huge focus on spending time together and making memories. Although it might be more appropriate to consider this odd and doomed creation of a family more of a Dr. Frankenstein type of project, my father, and those who didn't know better, would describe it as something like the Brady Bunch. And for a while, it really seemed that way. I don't doubt for a minute that, especially in the, in the first few years, in the early years, I don't doubt for a minute that, that Barbara probably saw Mike as the answer to all her problems, because that's how he presents himself. Yes. You know, when you're living a life of, you know, no structure, and somebody comes along and shows you structure, what you believe is structure, and it's really control, but... It looks like structure, and it's like, oh my God, this is great. You know, now I'm going to get this great life. My kids are going to have somebody who knows how to take care of them and, and wants to take a lot. And I'm sure he painted this great picture. And it was just towards the end that she started to realize that that picture was all watercolors and that the rain was washing away the color. Yeah. And, you know, it's all the all the crap that was going on started to, to fade the picture that she had of what her future. And, and her life was going to look like, which is 
again why I think she was ready to move on to do what she thought was the right thing for you kids. Like Teresa said, my father's true colors would show, and my mother quickly became unsure about him. He was becoming more violent, strange, and paranoid. Not only that, but he he tapped the phones too. Barbara would always say, "We need to go have coffee," and I, because she told me that Mike was tapping the phones. I'm like, "The fuck for?" Fair enough. I said, yeah. You know, I'm not sure about this, Mike. You know, and she'd say, "Well, I I just did. You want to talk to me about that thing? Let's have coffee." Wow. And I said, oh, "Okay, yeah, let's have coffee." So she expressed concerns about my father mm-hmm. when you guys went to yeah. coffee. What did she say? Um, once in a while she'd say something like, Mike and she have to go out in the desert. Or some of the holes in the walls weren't just the boys. Wow. But what would he get mad over? Anything. Yeah? Anything. They also had money problems. Like Linda mentioned in the story of how my parents met, my father got a second mortgage on the home. And my father was known to purchase things on store credit cards and return them for cash to make ends meet. My parents even divorced and remarried so my father could file for bankruptcy. My mother became a stay-at-home mom to six kids, the oldest being only 13 years younger than her. And things were hectic. She babysat other kids in the neighborhood, they bred dogs for extra money. In all the home videos, you just see mass amounts of kids and dogs running around. There's always someone yelling, someone crying. And I'm sure it was a lot to handle. At one point, when I was about three years old, I even slipped out of the house and got hit by a car and was taken by Child Protective Services. And around the same time, Alyssa had to be rushed to the hospital to have her stomach pumped. She had gotten into some medication of our father's. And she was also taken by Child Protective Services. And it seems like this is more than my father could bear. He checked himself into a mental rehabilitation center for a few months. But it wasn't just this hectic new family that caused this. The reasoning seems to be a combination of factors, as this is right where we start seeing the union activity popping up in the timeline of this story. If you aren't familiar with this case, my father developed a lifelong obsession with a labor union he was a part of. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or IBEW for short. My father joined this union in 1974 when he resigned from his job as deputy sheriff and began working as an electrician. My father joined the local chapters of this union in California, Montana, and Arizona as we moved around. But the focus of this eventually violent obsession was the local 640 chapter in Phoenix, Arizona. But it's in 1986 that we see this first tiff with the union appear in the reports. It's when my father failed a test to receive a promotion. He said it was rigged, that no one would be able to pass the test. He says the union did this on purpose, so they wouldn't have to promote from within the union, and they could hire someone from the outside. My father responded by printing and distributing a copy of the labor agreement around his workplace. He also responded by filing an official complaint, stating, quote, Since on or about May 1987, the above labor organization by its officers, agents, and representatives has harassed and discriminated against Mike Turney because said individual withdrew his membership from the above labor organization, end quote. The union responded by dismissing all of my father's charges due to insufficient evidence. He then appealed this decision, but he lost again. And two years later, in January of 1988, he would file another complaint against the union. This time, claiming that his co-workers weren't talking to him and they didn't want to work with him. He also brought this up in a meeting in front of everyone, and people started speaking out. They said my father had been recording their conversations, and that's why no one wanted to work with him. During this meeting, one of his co-workers is quoted as saying, Why does this company jump through its ass when Mike Turney says something? This co-worker goes on to question why the tape recording is allowed, and complains that my father was paid for the hours he spent at home after getting upset and leaving work due to these co-workers refusing to socialize with him. These arguments may seem silly, but they would later escalate into what my father described as threats. He said they'd call it all hours of the night, threatening the family. And my brothers say they remember answering some of these calls. And they remember some type of physical scuffle in a parking garage with a man my father claimed to be a part of the union. And to be fair, 
My research on union disputes shows that these types of small tiffs can turn violent under the right circumstances. There are even entire movies dedicated to union disputes turning violent. So I think it would be unfair to say that there was no corruption and there were no threats. I just don't think it went to the level of men in dark suits and dark cars following the family, let alone the kidnapping of Alyssa, as my father would later claim. We will continue to explore the escalation of the issues with the union throughout the podcast, but it's important to note that these situations added to the need for my father to take this mental break. I don't understand, you know, and and actually checked himself into a hospital for, I don't know, two or three months. My dad did? He's left there. Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard it. Like a mental hospital or? Yeah. Really? Yes. He checked himself in because she was so angry. She said, he's left me here to pick up these pieces and to take care of this. And so for, so for, I toured, I want to say maybe it was just a couple months. I don't remember how what the time frame was, but she had called me and she said his ass checked into a, into some hospital somewhere and he left me here to deal with all of this. She was just livid, which only cemented for her the need to just get the heck out. My mother was obviously upset about this decision. She even makes small remarks on home videos to him before he leaves, and Linda remembers it well. Left alone with six kids, she felt abandoned. And when he came back, he didn't seem to be any better. And it was becoming more and more clear that our father treated Alyssa differently. He didn't show her the same affection as the other kids. And despite Alyssa loving him and seeking his love and attention, our father was more often than not visibly annoyed with her. Mike, he then convinced her that we were all this one big Brady Bunch family. But he, and we all saw it. We all saw how he treated Alyssa differently. And, and and I said it on 2020, and, and and it just, because we saw so many incidents of where Alyssa was treated differently, and, and Lynette relates a story to me that when she was, um, I think it was when, when y'all were still in Phoenix and she stayed behind then, and one night you, Alyssa, and she went with your dad to the grocery. And we're doing some shopping, and you were teasing with Alyssa and jumping on her back. And you jumped on her back once, and Alyssa, I guess her knees went out from under anyway, ended up falling. You were crying. Your dad took it out on Alyssa, um, you know, telling her what a bad sister she was or whatever. He, but he blamed Alyssa for the whole incident, and Alyssa started crying. So she took Alyssa out to the car, and they were sitting out there, and she was just trying to get her to calm down and not, you know, stop crying. And she she said, Alyssa turned to her, and she said, Aunt Lynette, why doesn't my daddy love me? Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. So Alyssa, even at that young of age, felt like she wasn't loved by her daddy. When I was reviewing home videos for this episode, you can see how Alyssa longed for our father's attention, but he didn't often reciprocate this love. Sarah, look at your dad. Sarah. Sarah. Look at your dad. Sarah. Move out of the way, Alyssa, man. Sarah. 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 Hi, Dad. Boy, somebody's awful messy, Dad. Did you make that mess? Yes, I did, Dad. Awful good stuff, though, Dad, really. This next clip is from Halloween of 1989. I'm just over a year old, irritated in my uncomfortable, oversized devil costume while my parents coo over me. Alyssa is twirling for the camera again, practically begging my father to record her. Ironic, I know. Hi, Dad. Hi, Liz. Move out of the way a second. I got a picture, Sarah. I see you, Liz. I see Miss Piggy. Now this could be a natural side effect of Alyssa not being the baby in the family anymore. 
She's craving extra attention while our parents fussed over the new baby. But I reviewed over 40 hours of home videos for this time period. And there are almost no videos of Alyssa being shown affection or attention from our father. And you mostly hear him tell her to get out of the shot. Or he promises that he's filming her while he pans off to another kid. But despite this disinterest in showing Alyssa the affection she was seeking, my father began expressing concerns that Alyssa might have a learning disability. And you might remember from episode one, he said they even hired a tutor because he thought she was so far behind the milestones for a child about to start kindergarten. But Linda, who, remember, watched Alyssa five to seven days a week growing up, says that's not true at all. So, I mean, you were really close to her. So one thing I have to ask is my dad always says, you know, Alyssa had a learning disability. No, absolutely not. Yeah, he said, you know, Sarah, you have to remember that we had to hire a tutor to teach her her ABCs. And I said, well, that's probably your fault. She knew her ABCs. She knew her ABCs? She bet she did. She knew her ABCs, she could count, she knew what channel. At the age of two, she knew what channel Pooh Bear was on because it was on right after she got up from her nap. When the kids all came home from school, it was about the time she woke up from her nap. And if she didn't get to watch Pooh Bear, she just threw a fit. Yeah. And she'd tell them all to get out of the living room. She wasn't delayed, and she could write her name before she went in kindergarten. Even turning, she could write turning. Alyssa was not, by any means, delayed. When going through the home videos, I found a clip of Alyssa singing her ABCs. Our father was taping me when I was about six months old, and he was getting irritated that Alyssa kept getting in the picture. Rug shots. That's what they call a rug shot, though. It's not what are you doing? Your dad take it off automatically. Move, Les. Move. Don't get in there, Les. I want to get a picture of her. <laughs> Listen, you're going to have to move your leg, honey. You're going to have to move your leg. Would you please move out of the way? That's a picture of my boogers. What are you doing? Are you flying? Are you a flyer? Huh? This is a certain I have to admit that it hurts to hear those clips. I always felt Alyssa and I were treated differently, but I also always thought that we were loved equally. But that really wasn't the case. We will dive deeper into that in the next episode, but it's important to note that this is not something that slowly developed over decades. We were always treated differently. Alyssa never felt equally loved, and I don't blame her. So at this point, I think it's safe to say Alyssa wasn't exhibiting any signs of a learning disability. In fact, it seemed like Linda's work with her gave her a head start for kindergarten. She knew her ABCs, and she knew how to write her name. So between the paranoia, the violence, and Alyssa being treated differently, our mother was already getting fed up with our father. And then something happened that she couldn't ignore. Wait, um, so I've I've seen a document that Alyssa was taken to the doctor to be checked for sexual abuse, but I've never seen the results. What what happened? What I do know is that she did have some scar tissue um, that suggested that, yes, she, she was, had been sexually abused. Uh, and, she, I mean, she was, what, like seven at the time? Six yeah. or seven? Seven, seven, eight years old, somewhere in there. My mother knew it was time to get away from my father, so she started babysitting more kids and cutting back expenses to save money so she could get me, Alyssa, and John away from our father. But then my mother started complaining about a pain in her back, and it wouldn't go away. So she went to the chiropractor, who took some x-rays, and suggested that she consult another doctor. And a week later, she got the call. She had lung and bone cancer. Apparently a false positive she had gotten after I was born wasn't a false positive at all, and it had been growing for years. The outcome didn't look good. And a week later, they called, and she called me back, and told me that she had cancer February. You know, it was going to be the next week they were going to go in and do an exploratory. And that's when they went in. They took out three mom's ribs 
Did you, were you aware of that? No. They took out part of her collarbone. She had cancer of the bone, cancer of the lung. Um, they could see some lesions, different places of her. So anyway, they went in and they did all of this. And then she went in and did radiation. And then after you guys moved to Reading, then it was back. And she literally would drive herself. That's what pissed me off. She would drive herself, which was like a half an hour drive, and get her chemotherapy and radiation, and then she would drive herself back. And she would call me on her way back each time she had it done. I said, I want you to eat today. Are you eating today? And she'd say, no. When I saw your mom, I saw her about a month before she died. Your mother was just so tiny. It was at this time that my mother's family started coming around the house more often, checking on our mother. Her brother and his wife, Lori, came out to talk about what they were going to do, how to care for my mother. But my father didn't seem too concerned about making these plans. So we found out Barbara had cancer. Or we found, yeah, I think she had just gotten her diagnosis. So Kevin and I went down to, you know, Phoenix Junior. You know, we all went down. And um, that's when we first met Mike. He took us for a walk. I mean, we went and seen Barbara, and then he's like, you know, we need to take a walk. We need to talk. And he didn't want to talk about Barbara. I can't remember who all was on the walk. It was like five of us. Okay. And all he wanted to talk about was this conspiracy theory about JFK. And, you know, I mean, Kevin and I looked at each other like, okay, what kind of, what kind of, I mean, seriously, we were like, what kind of weirdo is this? So we should be talking about Barbara. What we set out to do was talk about a kind of a battle plan of how we were going to take care of her. You know, what everybody was going to do, and we were all going to, you know, take like take our turns and do, you know, this, I, you know, and all she wanted to talk about was this union and these, you know, how he's the next cop and everybody was out to get him and there was all these conspiracies going on around him. You know, so I mean, that was my first experience. And Kevin and I both are just like, oh, my God, we don't want this. What did Barbara do? <laughs> you know? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My father began videotaping my mother and her family while they visited. He said he did this for the kids, so that we'd have tapes of our mother after she passed. They would sit for hours around the kitchen table talking about everything. So after sifting through multiple tapes of hours and hours of conversations about current events, the kids, and nothing of real significance, everyone is laughing and my father walks in and they go quiet. I can't make out everything they're saying, but you can hear my father joking about covering the red light on the camera with tape, and then he says he wants to do this because my mother keeps turning the camera off. And then my Aunt Lynette speaks up and says she turns it off because he was taping their conversations. And my mom laughs it off, saying that I enjoy seeing the tapes. The reason why she does that is because you take all this. Well, <laughs> all of our conversations last night. Yeah, well, you know what? Though Sarah loves watching <laughs> I can't help but think that this is one more way for my father to control the situation. He states that he knows my mom is turning the camera off, and my Aunt Lynette is clearly not okay with it. But it seems that just like our father would eventually isolate Alyssa from her friends and family, he did the same thing to our mother. Like Linda mentioned earlier, 
After my mother was diagnosed with cancer, our father left some of my older brothers in Phoenix and moved the rest of the family to a very small town in California named Redding. I was always told that we moved so that my mother could be closer to a specialist. But what Lori remembers about this time and the move makes a lot more sense you know, to me. Even she was going through radiation and you know all that, but um, yeah, tried to make the best of it. And Mike was up in Redding, I think, working already. I don't know if he could get a job around there or what, but I don't know why he wanted to take her away. See, there's where the father thing comes in. It's like he wanted to take her away. Or maybe not her father. Maybe that's the wrong thing. He just wanted to be like her everything. Like he had, she had to depend on him for everything. And so took her away from all her friends down in Phoenix. And so that, you know, that wasn't very, I don't know. I just wouldn't have done that right in the middle of her cancer and stuff. And then she only lived maybe, what, six months living in Reading, eight months. Yeah, I mean, I was always told that, that we moved to Reading to be closer to, like, a specialist or a doctor or something that my mom needed. I think they have better doctors in Reading than they do in Phoenix. Uh, yeah, Phoenix, I mean, Phoenix is the, like, you go to Phoenix to get well. <laughs> they have the best doctors in Phoenix. Reading is not the capital of it. I mean, no, there was no specialist up there. Wow. I yeah. think he just wanted to isolate her more from her family and um, her friends. But, you know, we were closer. So we could travel there, you know, a little bit more. But it was really hard to go and be around him, you know. In addition to being controlling and isolating her from the family, he started to belittle her and resent her. And it seemed like my mother really just wanted to be around her family. When I was there at Thanksgiving, um, there just the, the year before she died, November of 92, she had called me up and she said, she said, Sissy, I want us to have Thanksgiving. And I said, okay. And she said, I want a Thanksgiving like we had when we were kids. Said, okay. So I got on a plane, uh, flew out to Sacramento. But after a tiring shopping trip from the day before, my mother didn't have much of an appetite. So her, my Aunt Lori, and my Aunt Lynette went for a walk, and they smoked some pot in hopes of getting my mother hungry to eat some Thanksgiving dinner. And it worked. But when they got back to the house, my father was not pleased. The only thing, like when, when your mom wasn't eating at all, and so when I went up there, you know, I smoked pot, always had pot on me, and me and Lynette and your mom took a walk, and she smoked some pot, and she came back, and she was actually hungry. It was Thanksgiving, and she was actually hungry for food, and so she was eating, and your dad said something to the effect of, to the kids, I think it was, I can't remember exactly who it was, and he goes, this is exactly what a loser looks like. This people that smoke pot are losers. And I was just like, oh, what the fuck? Really? I actually found a clip from a home video from that Thanksgiving. My mom is at the kitchen counter, filling her plate with food with her sisters Lynette and Teresa. And Lori said my mother was barely eating. So you'd think even if my father was mad at them for smoking a little pot, he'd be happy that she was at least eating, Right. Mark, you could have stopped a minute because I got to push you all three of you together. Forking out. Did you cry? Did you hear? I don't know if you guys want to eat. That's all you think about is eating. That's all we think about is eating. But like the beginning of so many strange stories within Alyssa's larger story, it gets more strange and so much worse. Like I mentioned, my father was getting resentful as she was getting more and more ill. And he made comments about not being able to sleep with her, having to take care of her, and how upset he was that she was leaving him with all these yeah. kids. Well, there was a point that he said to my mom, he said, he, he, he said that, does she even know what she's doing? And my mom looked at him and she said, what? She said, she's leaving me here with these kids and everything to take care of myself by myself. And it looks like, just as he had done in the past, he was already thinking about getting another woman in the house to take care of the kids. But of course, 
Michael Turney wouldn't just pick any new wife. And then he told Kevin that same time that he was looking for another wife. He, he, he wasn't going to raise kids alone, and he was looking for another wife. And that, I think, was when he started really thinking about to replace Barbara. Wow. Yeah. Mike's telling his brother-in-law that he's already looking for another wife and his wife's laying in there dying. Give me a break. Kevin, he said if I didn't lose respect for him before, I lost complete respect for him right then. He goes, I knew Barbara was in, you know, he goes, I kind of always knew Barbara's in trouble with him. But, you know, wow, that was that was a biggie to Kevin because a normal person wouldn't do that. And it was at this time while his 34-year-old wife, the full-time mother to his six children, who was dying of cancer, that he allegedly committed another act of sexual assault on another sister-in-law. The third sister-in-law, if you're keeping count. Here's Lori again, describing the call she got from Lynette about the incident. I need to tell you something. It's okay. Take your time, and I, and I'm okay. Like you can tell me anything, and I, I'll. It's better that I know than I don't. And I don't know, know if you know this because I, and I can only tell you now because that's not here. So I, she never wanted. She never wanted to be questioned. Your dad raped her. She called me the night it happened. She didn't tell me what happened. All I remember is her calling me and telling me that she was scared. I mean, she was crying for Barbara. Barbara wasn't there. Barbara had went to visit Grandma Paris in Michigan. Oh. She took a flight there, and Lynette stayed there to take care of you kids. And that's when it happened. He, she feels, and her mom thought the same thing, was that he drugged her drink, because she only had two mixed drinks. Lynette could hold her liquor. Oh, yeah. And yeah. she had two mixed drinks. She said she she staggered down the hall, and the next thing she knew, he was on top of her, and he was kind of like suffocating her, but he, he, was, he was raping her. She was crying so hard, it was hard to understand, and I just kept telling her to just breathe, just try to breathe and talk to me, just breathe and talk to me, tell me what's going on, you know. And she actually couldn't say the words, but I kind of had a feeling of what was going on, but there, what, you know, your dad's a scary person to even confront with anything. Even this early in the story, we can see that my father is developing a pattern. He assaulted a third sister-in-law who was already married. Like Donna, Jamie, and his first wife's two sisters, he was pursuing women he absolutely should not, for a variety of reasons. But Lynette didn't tell my mother. She was afraid of my father, and afraid of being cut off from the family if she spoke up. I don't know if my mother ever found out, and I kind of hope she didn't. But like so many things in this story, I never knew the details of my mother's death. I never asked. And if I'm being honest, I didn't want to know. It seemed so clear-cut. It was cancer. End of story. But as I began asking more questions, my father's stories started to fall apart, as they tend to do. Growing up, one thing I always knew was that three weeks before my mother died, my father was fired from his job. He said there was no good reason, that it was just the union harassing him again. And this tormented my father for decades. It was the cornerstone of his sob story. Look at this poor guy. He gets fired by a corrupt union just three weeks before his wife dies of cancer? What terrible luck. But none of it was true. My Aunt Teresa sent me a document. My father was never fired from his job three weeks before his wife died. He quit. And it clearly states that he will lose all health and life insurance benefits by the end of the month. So at this point, if my mother didn't die by the end of the day, on February 28, 1993, my father would be left with no health insurance, with six children and a wife currently in the end stages of cancer, requiring numerous expensive medications. 
he would be left with no income and no life insurance money. But that didn't seem to concern him much at all. In fact, he was spending more money than ever, and he would even justify the spending, stating that the life insurance policy would cover it. Knowing that my mother would have to die in just a few weeks in order for him to collect the money. You know, it's like, oh, why, why are you spending all this money? Barbara's got cancer. And, oh, well, we're going to get a big settlement out of her life insurance policy. And it's like, oh, my, my. I asked Kevin, I said, do you think there's any way he could have given her cancer? <laughs> you know, I mean, is there an injection you can give somebody that gives them cancer? Because I swear if that man could do that, he would. He seemed like he was money hungry. This is not the part where I tell you that I think my father injected my mother with something that gave her cancer. But it is the part where I tell you that I think he had a plan to ensure that my mother died before this three-week deadline was up. Time was ticking, and people were watching. My mother's sister Lynette and her mother Linda came to care for her in those last few weeks. And what they reported back to Teresa is extremely suspicious, to say the least. me and said, if your mom and Lynette are going to come here to take care of Barbara, then they need to get here because we're, we're at the end. I remember mom telling me when they first got there was that um, Mike had sat down with them and he told them, okay, this is how, it, how it's going to go. And he had this schedule I guess, I don't know, a refrigerator or what. But he had some this schedule of what medications she got, when she got them, and how much. And so he went over this schedule with them, um, with the medication. And, of course, there, Barb was at that point, pretty sick and and again all the changes so it was emotional for my mom and my dad and so that's when he offered them I said you know well I've got these little happy pills and so um um it's 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 this is going to be hard so if you need this this medication you know I've got it and here it is for you and and he handed the bottle to my mom, and my mom had in the back, and she said, yeah, I don't do that stuff. And and so she wasn't going to take it. Lynette said, no. Um, the mom said, I'm here to take care of my daughter. That's all I'm here to do. And so that was the first thing. Then when he was going over this schedule is when he told them this. He said, here's how much of the pain medication she gets. She was on liquid morphine. And through like an IV you know, drip or no, it was it was like a dropper or I, I don't know if they put it in a in a like a dropper and put it in her mouth or they used a spoon. But okay. but it was she took it orally. And he said so he said towards the end what's gonna have to happen here is that it's going to get so bad that we're going to have to increase the dose. And he said, what what eventually is going to happen is we have to increase the dose enough that she will be in a morphine coma. That's what he told my mom. And so after this conversation, Mom and Lynette were outside on the porch, and she looked at Lynette and she said, so do you understand what he's telling us? telling us he wants us to overdose her. And she said, unless I have a doctor telling me that I need to increase her dosage, then it's going to go the way it says on the prescription. So at that point, I started being more diligent and paying more attention to when Mike was giving her the medication they were going to all take shifts or take turns or whatever. Yeah. And um, she was in the hospital bed in the living room at that point, and there was a recliner in there, so Mom slept in that recliner. So if Barbara woke up and needed anything, she was right there. She, um, 
recalled one night that he had given her whatever whatever Mike had I guess it was the first time she gave it to her in the dropper that Mike had told her to give this much, so she did. And Barbara looked at her and she said, Is that all? I mean, here's the one thing about your mom. She never became incoherent. She knew everything that was going on. She she knew everything she was supposed to have, when she was supposed to have it, how she could have it, whatever. She knew. So you're so you're saying she was surprised that it was a smaller dose instead of like the normal yeah, larger dose my dad was enough. giving her? Exactly. Wow. So it was not enough. So what he what my mom kinda of deduced at this point was that Mike first of all was underdosing her so that it would appear that her pain was increasing. So that, that they could up the dose. Right, because who cares about her actually being in pain when you can just manipulate right. the entire situation? Exactly. So then he, at that point is when he said, well, I guess we're going to have to up the up the dose. Well, Barbara knew what she got that night was not the amount she normally got. The amount she normally got would have been sufficient. Well, yeah, I'm sure you can, like, feel the difference in your mouth. Like, uh-huh. if you take a shot, you, exactly. like, yeah. So... Mom went to the bottle and that's the little pot with the dropper in it that, and she just, you know, she said, okay, this is what it says on the bottle. This is how much I'm giving her. I don't care what his schedule says. This is what the doctor has prescribed. Right. So she went back to doing the regular dose. Well, then I guess Mike tried to switch, flip that around a little bit and still maintain that he was going to up her dose. And mom said, given her her medication, it was her shift, and he, she had given her her medication, Barbara was happy with that, copy with what she had received, and about an hour later, mom was in the recliner, and, and my mother was always a very light sleeper, she heard everything, and so she was in the recliner, had her eyes closed, I think the dad just assumed she was asleep. So Mike came up to the bed to give Barbara another dose of medication. And Mom woke up or opened her eyes and looked at him and she said, I've already given her her meds. And it kind of took your dad by surprise at that point. And so he stopped. He said, oh, I guess I wasn't aware. So he was trying to give her a second dose. I mean, was there like a chart or anything where you guys tracked it that you would have been able to? Originally, yes, there was. Okay. Originally, there was. And and that's, again, when my mom caught him that night is when the chart went to hell. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give it to her according to the bottle. Barbara knows when she needs it or when she gets it. This is how we're going to do this, whether his chart fits that or not. It's not. But, it's no longer important to her. I guess what I'm asking is like, when you guys gave her the dose or when they gave her the doses, did you guys write it down? Like, you know, at 6.15 I gave this many milligrams or, or whatever. Was that tracked I at all? I think it was just like a little, I think, because I think what he did, he was pretty, yeah. It was like the schedule of hours that went down one side and then there was the days of the week at the top. So you just checkboxed it when you gave her the okay. medication. Sure. So there was a way to check if somebody had already right. given her a dose. Okay. Right. And so, um, and mom had done his little chart for him that night. Apparently he didn't care. So he was, he was fully intended. He was doing what he intended to do. It wasn't, he was not aware. And so that was when my mom said, okay, enough. And so what she did is she went and got some blankets and she made a pallet on the floor right next to Barbara's bed on the side that Mike would have to come to to give her her medication or do whatever. The mom slept on the floor next to her bed. Wow. So Mike would have to wake her in order to get to Barbara. So she knew. I mean, she knew. Yeah. Was there she any... Exactly what was going on. And, that's what, and that was when she heard the conversation with him that he had with his mom. 
he had no idea that mom was in the house when he was on the phone that night. When uh, what are you talking about? What did he say on the phone? He was talking to his mother, and that's what he told. My mom overheard him telling his mother that if she doesn't die before February 1st, then the life insurance policy is no good. So that's when mom started putting all these things together about how much morphine she gets and how we're going to have to overdose her and so on and so on. Yeah. And and so that's when she put it all together and she told Lynette, she said, now we have to pay real close attention to everything. Was there any a com- was there any confrontation that ever happened between between them? You know what? There was not. Well, which I get. I mean, she's she's dying. Yeah. It's her last days. There's a ton of kids in the house. There was there was one point where again, Mike started to feel like with my mom there, he was losing that control. He also knew that he was on a timeline. Yeah, and so. I, I don't know what the whole conversation was. I do know that my mother, oh, I know what it was. He said something about uh, the house not getting getting clean. He wasn't working. And the house wasn't getting clean, and the other kids were not being taken care of, and blah, blah, blah. And my mom looked at him, and she said, and I'm not here to be your maid. The house is yours. and nothing else to do on the day. I'm here to take care of Barbara. That's it. Right. I'm not here to take care of your house. Well, she got angry, and she went outside on the, from the patio doors in the back, and she had a, a punching bag that was hanging there, or one of those, those long punching bags. And my mom said, she went out there, and she said, he hit that thing so hard that it pulled the screw out of the, and it dropped on the ground. So he was that angry, and he was that intent on letting her know what I'm capable of. And she was, she was afraid at that point. And so, not that it, she was afraid enough to keep moving his direction or change in his direction, but she made sure, and she, like I said, she told Lynette, we just have to be very careful and diligent at this point. Yeah. I don't know what he's going to do if, if, you know, she, she was capable of at that point. Other than, you can hit a that hard enough to knock it out of this point. Um, so that was the only, I guess, confrontation that they had, although there was one day, Barbara so badly wanted to go to the lake. I don't know where the lake is, or there's a little park, a little lake somewhere. And she wanted to go to the lake. And they just, she was intent on it. So Mom and Lynette, they had your dad and mom had a van at that time. So what they did is they took the recliner that sat in the living room and they put it in the van. And then they set her in the recliner in the van and took her to the lake. That's amazing. And your dad was just livid. He was livid that they took her out. I mean, was she not supposed to be outside, or what? There was no reason for her not to go. Okay. We're at this point now where you're at the end of your day. If you want something, do it. It wasn't going to make her cancer worse. Yeah. It wasn't going to make her die sooner. Um, So they did. They took her out to the lake, and they sat out there, and she absolutely loved it. So that was pretty much... What I remember those days, um, like I said, the phone call was what made, and, and the fact that he was trying to give her the medication extra was what alerted my mom to it. Now, the day that she passed, and my mom and I talked about this, because most people, when they are at that point, there's a certain peace that comes. There's a certain calm that comes. And I've, I've worked with geriatric patients. I've worked with um, the elderly. I've worked with the dying. And, and this happens. There's just a peace that comes over them. Because I, 
somehow inherently or innately we know, and you just let go. Yeah. So the day that she passed, Mom said that um, I, I think Lynette gave her her medication that morning, and she was sleeping pretty comfortably. She woke up, um, and Mom was outside, when, I think, when she woke up. And so, I guess your dad gave her the last dose of medication. Keep in mind, this is the 28th of February. Yeah. And the insurance policy lapsed that next month yeah, in March. You got till midnight. Right. You got till midnight. And so, Mom went back in the house. Um, Barbara looked at Mom, and she said the look was a little bit strange. But she thought, well, and she asked her, she said, are you in pain? And Barbara shook her head no. She didn't speak. She just shook her head no. And Mom said that she, and of course, you know, we grew up in my mom's era, and a lot of people, nobody died in the hospital in my mom's era. Nobody died at home. So it was something that she recognized, and she said what she thought she was hearing was what they termed in those days is the death rattle. There's a certain way people breathe at the end. She's really the last few minutes. And she said, so she, what she thought she was hearing was a death rattle. Barbara never got that call. Barbara never got that peace. She kept begging mom to call and call 911, to call for an ambulance. Within moments. And again, mom not knowing, and there's no evidence or proof of otherwise, only our suspicion was that he gave her too much. Yeah, because it wasn't like a peaceful lull. It was like, right. oh my gosh, I got too much medication, call 911, yeah. like it can be helped. Yeah. yeah. And so, again, mom not knowing, just she sat with her. She kept telling her, it's okay, baby. You know, if you, you can let go, whatever. And Barbara kept shaking her head, shaking her head. And she and, and said, she wanted her to call 911. And Mom said, um, she looked at Barbara and a tear rolled down her cheek. And she called Mike, Mom did, and she said, if you want to be here for her last moment, you need to be here now. So he came in the room. He sat on the edge of the bed. And she took her last breath. Wow. He never talked to her. He never spoke to her. Um, you know, Mom and Lynette were both there letting her know that she was loved. Um, that she would be missed. Your dad never said anything. Barbara Lee Turney was pronounced dead at 5 a.m. on February 28, 1993, less than 24 hours shy of the expiration date of her life insurance policy. My father requested that no autopsy be performed. The official cause listed on her death certificate is respiratory failure due to large cell carcinoma of the lung. Next time on Voices for Justice. Well, it, there was a lot of hints that were coming when I came to stay with you guys, you know, when you tell him the, uh, you know, he, he, he told me what he had to do with Alyssa, you know, uh, tying her up one time. And, and I, he, I mean, he just came out of the blue just telling me, you know, like, why would you tell me that? You know, I mean, but, and I think he was doing that just in case Alyssa was going to put it out to me. Yeah, but he's, he's the master manipulator. You know what I mean? And he manipulated you. He manipulated everybody around him. I think everybody feared him. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. I, there's not a reason in the world that I could think of anybody wanting to hate Alyssa besides your dad. I just remember, I recall, you know, like I said, 
Indiana has so many medications. I mean, it is, I remember one time, I, I just wanted it, had to be 30 of them on his, he had his uh, uh, cable, or little night cable, whatever you want to call it, or chest, I don't remember, it was by his bed, and it was like 30 bottles right there, or something like that, it's just insane, a lot of pill bottles. Oh, yeah. But, my God. Well, and if he was giving these to me and I was taking them willingly, like, who's to say that these weren't being, like, crushed up and put in our food or something? And I found out recently, I found out yesterday, that Alyssa knew about the camera in the vent, too. Um, so Alyssa she was, knew about all the cameras. Were there more? Voices for Justice is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Sarah Turney. If you want to learn more about Alyssa's story and how you can help with the case, visit justiceforalyssa.com. And if you love the show, it would really help if you gave me a rating and review in your podcast player. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you next time.